that says that if you will create a space for God, he will fill that space. And uh, I believe that's what a revival is. We are creating space. We are intentionally setting some space aside to hear from the Lord and speak to us. So let's take our Bibles, let's go to the Gospel of Matthew, and let's go to chapter number 18. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 18. And uh, I guess I didn't come last year, I kind of forgot about that, but uh, my name's Eric, for those of you that, that maybe don't know me or are new faces to me, it's good to see some of those that I do know. Brother John, uh, running the games last night, uh, he did a great job with the games, and uh, always good to see Luke Coffee and uh, uh, Luke in the back running sound. He's been a familiar face for a long time, and uh, uh, glad you're, you're still around, man. It's good to see you. And of course, the Cox family. I can't even hardly recognize his kids, although they all look exactly like Pastor Matthew, so uh, uh, kind of easy to spot out, at least his, his boys are anyways. And uh, that was great. Marshall got a good big old pie in the face last night or whatever that was. Was it shaving cream? Oh, oh whipped cream. Yeah, whipped whip cream. We, you went easy on it then. Okay. All right. Uh, but anyways, we had a good time last night with the teens looking forward to this week. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. And I want to pick up with Peter's question in verse 21, where the Bible says, Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him till seven times. And Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Lord, we certainly thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to open your word. Lord, I pray that in these next few moments you would speak to us. I pray that your word would go forth, that your spirit would go forth with it, and that, Lord, you would change us. That, uh, that, that, Lord, we would, uh, that we, we, we would surrender our clay to the potter, and that we would allow you to mold us through your word and through the spirit of God speaking to us. Lord, I pray that we would respond this morning to your word. We'll thank you for it. We'll praise you for it. For you're certainly worthy of it. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen. My wife is an avid reader, and uh, she's always been that way. In fact, I think last year she read 75 books. She said she was slowing down this year, and I think she's at 50, so I don't know. I don't know if that's slowing down or not. She's just always reading, Uh, and uh, she's always been that way, even as a kid. Like, when she got in trouble as a kid, her parents would take her books away. Like, no more books for you, you know? And when I got in trouble as a kid, my parents gave me books to read. You know, you need to read this, you know? And so we've always been polar opposite in that regard. And it works out well because we drive pretty much everywhere we go. This is the rare occasion where I have kind of flown in uh, by myself uh, with my son, Mason. And uh, so we're always on the road. And so uh, while I'm driving, she'll be reading a book, you know? And I don't mind that at all because I like to look out and kind of view the, the creation, you know? and view uh, the the, the sights, and uh, I like that. But every once in a while, you drive through a state where there's just nothing to look at, you know, looking at you, Kansas, you know, it's just boring, it's just the same thing over and over and over and over again. And so on those particular drives, I desire to, you know, have a conversation, you know, have a a conversation. And, uh, And so I have learned to ask the question, how's the book? Now I could care less about the book. I have no interest in what the book is, what it's about, and all like that. I'm just hoping that by asking that question, she'll put the book down, and we can kind of talk, and you know, then maybe we can get to you know other things like sports, you know. And so I, that's that's kind of my goal. And so and so uh, one day we were driving through Kansas, and I was getting bored of the drive, and so I looked over and I said, uh, "Hey, how's the book?" And I immediately regretted asking the question. I have never seen my wife close a book so fast. It was like she was anticipating me asking the question. She says, oh, Eric, you have got to read this book. I said, well, we both know that's not going to happen. So uh, I said, why why don't you just tell me what it's about? Well, what's the title? She said, well, the title is called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Yeah, right away I'm out. Uh, uh, Tidying up is not something I've been known to do. And uh, I was raised Baptist, so, you know, magic is of the devil. You know, that's of the, that's, that's, uh, that's of the devil. So get that out of here, you know. And uh, She said, well, well, the subtitle is The Japanese Secret to Decluttering and Organizing Your Life. Okay, I said, uh, what's the secret? She said, what? I said, well, you just said that the, the subtitle was The Japanese Secret to Decluttering, Organizing, you know, so what is the secret? So she begins to thumb through the book, like she's got highlights, you know, she's going to read me an I quote from the book, and this is the, the section she found. She said, the key, this is an I quote from the book, the key to cleaning out your space is knowing exactly what you want to keep and then getting rid 
of everything else. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the definition of, like, I mean, how profound, you know? I mean, uh, we, we paid someone to write that, you know? I mean, what in the world? I said, yeah, that's kind of the definition of cleaning up, you know? She says, yeah, yeah, but how do you decide what you want to keep? Humoring the conversation more, I said, I don't know. How? How do you decide what you want to keep? She said, well, this is where the author kind of, you know, this is kind of known as her system. But she says that you're supposed to kind of, you know, divide your house by section. And so let's say, uh, let's say you had decided you wanted to clean out your clothes. So you would go in and you would get all of your clothes out. You'd get you know, it all in a big pile so you could kind of see the enormity of all of your stuff. And then you would take each item out individually. And you would hold the item up and you would ask it, do you spark joy? And if the answer is yes, you keep it. If the answer is no, you get rid of it. Well, I had to pull over on the sideway, on the highway at this point, because I am just laughing hysterically. Because all that, all that, all the only image that popped into my mind was me going into my closet, grabbing out my socks, and holding them up and saying, oh, socks, do you spark joy? No, right? And I said, babe, if I did that, there wouldn't be anything left in my closet. She said, well, at least it'd be clean. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I, you know, when I put the shirt on this morning, Pastor, I, I, I wasn't like, whoa, the sparks are just flying off of this thing. Wow, no, 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 it was ironed and clean, right? I mean, that's kind of how that's kind of how we as men operate, you know. And so th- this has become an inside joke in my family, you know. Anytime my wife wants to buy something, I say, I don't know, honey, not sparking much joy for me, you know. And it sparked a lot of joy in my bank account, I'll tell you that. And uh, we, we laugh, we joke about that, but it does make me wonder how often we hold on to things in our life even though they don't spark joy. You know, we become attached to emotions like bitterness and anger. Hurts and offenses, we, we store them away in the closet of our life, even though they don't spark joy, even though they rob us of our peace, we just can't seem to let them go. And I come to you today as the Apostle Paul came to the church in Ephesus in chapter 4 and verse 31, when he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Paul says, listen, you have been holding on to, to, to some bitter roots, and you've allowed it to, 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 to fester, you've allowed it to grow, you've watered those roots, and out have come the, the ugly fruit of anger and clamor and evil speaking and malice. And he said, listen, all of this stuff you've been holding on to, and it's time to hold it up. Realize it's robbing you of your peace. Realize it's not sparking joy. Realize that it's holding you back from, from the life God has wanted to give you. And you need to, by the grace of God, get it out of your life and choose rather to be kind one to another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Simply put this morning, church, it's time to clean out the closet. Amen. We will never have revival until we learn how to forgive. We will never have revival until we learn how to forgive. Now here in Matthew chapter 18, Peter comes to the Lord with a question. And it's a good question. In fact, it's a question that had been asked for about 200 years before Jesus even stepped onto the scene. The question is simple. Lord, how often does my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Uh, in other words, he says, uh, how many times do I have to forgive before I'm allowed to hold on to the hurt? Right? Sorry, I forget. You guys are fine. Stay in a box, okay? Sorry, online video. <laughs> I know we've got millions and millions of viewers, okay? So we got to... And make sure they can see this, because this is, this is why they tuned in. That's trust me. Sorry. Okay. All right. Well, where was it at? How often do I have to forgive 
How many times do I have to forgive before I'm allowed to hold on to the hurt? How many times do I have to uh, forgive before I'm allowed to uh, plot my revenge, right? How many times do I have to offer forgiveness? How many times do I have to give grace and show mercy before I'm allowed to get even and settle the score, right? How many times do I have to forgive before I'm allowed to get bitter? Peter even answers the question. He says, um, how about seven times? That sound like a good number to you? And like I said, he, Peter's actually being quite generous here in the conversation that had been taking place in the synagogue amongst the rabbis, and no doubt in the homes after church. Uh, they, had, they had debated this question. And most of the rabbis had settled on three times. That after three times, there was a loophole in the Torah that allowed you to hold grudges, apparently, right? But, uh, but Peter doesn't say three times. Peter says seven times. Where does Peter get this number? Well, I think Peter knows he's following a rabbi, Jesus, that's a little bit different than the other rabbis of the day, right? He's, he does things a little unconventional. And I think Peter was in church on Sunday where, where Jesus preached the message on forgiveness in Luke chapter 17. Because Peter, Peter's heard this message before where Jesus says that if your brother trespassed against you seven times in a day and, and you turn to him and rebuke him, well, you are to forgive him. So seven times in a day, if someone has hurt you, you're supposed to offer forgiveness. Well, that's a pretty cool message. But Peter's takeaway is, so what about the eighth time? Like on the eighth time, am I allowed to get bitter? On the eighth time, am I allowed to hold on to the grudge? On the eighth time, am I allowed to hurt them like they hurt me? What about the eighth time? And Jesus' answer stuns Peter. And I believe it ought to stun every single one of us. For Jesus looks at Peter and says, no, Peter. I say unto you, not until seven times, but until 70 times seven. Okay, what's Jesus doing here? Because I don't think Jesus is giving Peter a math equation to figure out real quick. Like, no, 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 Peter, do the math, okay? Get your tally book out. You still have 483 times to go, okay? You keep track, and when you get to 490, buddy, you go get them, all right? You, you, you go plot that revenge. No, no, no. It's not what Jesus did. Jesus certainly isn't doing what we as parents do with our kids and just trying to trump Peter's number. You know, like, oh, Peter, not seven times. Uh, uh, Seventy times seven. You know, he's not just pulling out a bigger number. Like, Jesus is doing something very intentional here. He's actually referencing an Old Testament passage all the way back in Genesis chapter number four. Now, Genesis four contains the story of Cain and Abel. That's a good one, isn't it? That's a terrible one. Cain kills Abel. We have the first murder in Scripture. And in a little bit of an ironic ironic move at the end of that narrative, Cain cries out to God, and he says, well, now that I've killed Abel, uh, they're going to be out to kill me. That There's going to be a mark upon my life. And so God says, really in an act of compassion, that I'll put a mark upon your life. And if anybody takes your life, well, vengeance will be mine, saith the Lord, sevenfold. Okay, after that, we get a genealogy of Cain. Oh, man, don't you just love genealogies? Yeah, Cain found a wife, and they had a kid, and wouldn't you know what? He found a wife, and they had a kid. It's like, who cares? Who's having kids? Who cares? Who's getting married, okay? Don't send me your wedding invitation, okay? I don't want to know, right? And so this is like this big, this big mess of name after name after name. But out of that genealogy, we find this guy named Limech, and Limech is a weird dude. Like, he just starts talking randomly in the scripture. He just starts randomly speaking. And not only is he speaking randomly, but he's speaking randomly in the third person. Right? Anytime you meet someone like that, just run. Okay? Those people are weird. He says, Ye wives of women, hear me. I have slain a child for my wounding. I have killed a young man for my hurting. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Limech shall be avenged seventy and sevenfold. All right, quite the uh, admission from our man named Limick here. He has just confessed to murdering two children for hurting him, for bruising his ego. And the Hebrews, it's really vague. It's like they, they, they made fun of him or, or they, they kind of like slapped him uh, in jest as a joke. And, and he has uh, taken their life. And really, the ode of Limick is simple. You don't mess with Limick, right? Uh, no, if, if the Lord takes vengeance upon Cain sevenfold, well, I'm going to take vengeance seventy and sevenfold. I'm going to up that to the upteenth degree. In other words, you don't mess with Limit. Even if you make fun of Limit, you're going to pay for it with your life. You can say what you will about the Ode of Limit, but the Ode of Limit is exactly how our world operates. Our world operates off the Ode of Limit. 
You hurt me, but you're going to pay for it. You offended me, I'm going to make sure you fill it. And bitterness is not really about getting even. No, no, no. Bitterness is about keeping the pain in motion. It's about keeping the pain circulating. And it's oftentimes about keeping the pain escalating. That they got to hurt more than they hurt us. And we got to make sure they really pay for how they hurt us. And it's just this cycle of bitterness and revenge and vengeance and anger and malice and evil speaking. And Jesus takes that narrative and he turns it on its head and he says, listen, I know you come from a worldview that tells you that the people who hurt you, even minorly, deserve major consequences. He says, I want you to go out and find the person who hurt you the most, who deserves it the least, and I want you to offer them unlimited forgiveness and grace. In other words, he says, listen, Peter, you never hold on to the grudge. You never get bitter. You always, always, always offer forgiveness. Uh, now, listen, we can just all admit at this point. That's a little bit of a tough truth to swallow, you know? Like, uh, yeah, okay. But uh, that's not real, right? Like, uh, I will say, uh, like, that's real inspirational, Jesus. Uh, 70 times 70. I mean, you should paint that on a Hobby Lobby sign and sell it to my mom. Like, she'll buy it. But, like, like Jesus, that's not real. Um, uh, that person hurt me. I will say things like that. That person ruined my life. Uh, uh, the, 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 that event that took place replays in my mind over and over and over again. Uh, uh, what that person said, even when I see them on Facebook or see them out in color or hear their name mentioned, I'm like right back in that situation where that was done or that was, was said. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm tossing and turning in my sleep night after night because of what that person did or what that person said. That person ruined my life. Now I'm here to tell you this morning, you're right. I do not know the degree of pain nor the depth of betrayal that you have faced. I do not know the trauma that you have endured in your life. I do not know the nightmares that keep you tossing and turning in your sleep. All I know is that here in this passage, Jesus says, my grace is greater that what I have done for you is greater than what anyone has done to you. Now again, we can just admit, that's a tough truth to swallow. Like, I think Peter's face looked like some of your faces this morning. Like, okay, I mean, you're, you're the rabbi, but I'm not buying it, you know? Like, I mean, I get it. I hear what you're saying, but I don't know about that. So what Jesus does next is he says a parable. He tells Peter a parable. Now, a parable was a popular form of storytelling in the ancient Near Eastern world. It's the sermon-giving style that, that really was a, 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 an earthly story that, that, give, that gave you heavenly insights. It gave you a heavenly perspective to your earthly situation. And really, the goal here in telling the story is that it's going to be a simple story, one that we can get lost in, one that we are going to be emotionally drawn into, but it's going to to help us unlock a complex truth from God, like forgiving your neighbor 70 times 70, okay? And so what I want to do for, for the rest of the time we've got this morning, like, like before we go to lunch, is, is I want to, to trisect the parable into three parts. And, and hopefully by the time we go to lunch, we will understand the importance that forgiveness has to God, but even more importantly than that, how important forgiveness is for you and for me this morning. Can we do that? All right, let's do this. The first, the first section of the parable I've labeled as an accounted debt. An accounted debt. So look at verse number 23 of Matthew chapter number 18. Verse 23. Jesus says, Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife, and his children, and all that he had, and payment to be 
made. Okay, so right away we're introduced to this king of a kingdom, this uh, CEO type figure. And we don't know a lot about him, but what we do know about him is that he has been generous. He has loaned out money to his servants, but he's also studious because we are introduced to him on collection day, right? Like he's opening the books up. He's making sure that all the money is being accounted for, that the payments are being made probably with interest, right? Like he's making sure that he's balancing his books. And he comes to the top of his list, I'm guessing, and he finds the servant which owes him 10,000 talents. Okay, that sounds like a lot of money, doesn't it? I, I guess I didn't realize how much money this is, because, like, yeah, 10000 sounds like a lot, but what's a talent, you know? Like, if a talent's a penny, that's not all that much, you know? So, like, what was a talent? Well, currency is hard to transfer over into our vernacular, because currency is always changing. And when we talk about something like a talent, a talent wasn't an amount of money. It was actually a some weight of your money. Okay, and so what I'm trying to say is scholars are going to be all over the place. Like, there are scholars that will say it's more than this, scholars that will say it's less than this. What I've done is I've taken 10 sources that I like to use and trust, and I found the median. Okay, so we're looking at the middle, the middle estimate throughout the message, just for the sake of consistency. And they say that a talent would have been about a year and a half worth of wages for a middle-class individual of their day, meaning that it would be about $36,000 in our day. Okay. That's one talent. This guy owes 10,000 talents. Yeah, that's $360 million. Now that's an astronomical number. In fact, it's 10 times the national budget of Jesus' day. No doubt the audience would have laughed at this point because there's no doubt, there's no reason that a king would ever loan that kind of money, nor is there any way a servant would ever need that kind of money. But the point Jesus is making is clear. This guy owes a debt to... to to the king that he's never paying back. He owes a debt to the king that it would take him 30 lifetimes to pay back. He is never paying back the debt. And his application, if you will, is clear that this is meant to represent our standing when it comes to God. That we all owe a debt to God that we can never pay back. Because one day we'll stand before God. The Bible says that it is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, there is judgment, that every one of us shall give an account of himself before God. And Jesus says that he's been keeping careful track. For Jesus says that every idle word that man shall speak, he shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. And the sobering reality this morning is that apart from Jesus, we are all in deep, 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 deep debt to God. The Bible says in Psalms 14 that the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men, to see if there were any that did good and understand and seek God. But they are all gone astray. They are all going to become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Paul quotes that passage of Scripture in Romans 3. Just let us know it's still true in the New Testament as it was in the Old. When he says, as it is written, there is none righteous. There is none that seeketh after God and understandeth. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their mouth they have used the sea. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are quick to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of the Lord before their eyes. And we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and that the whole world might become guilty before God. You've been tried in the court of heaven. Your sin condemns you. The Bible says that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the good and the evil. Hebrews tells us neither is there any creature that is not manifested in his sight. God sees all, God knows all, and there is nothing that can be hid from his account. So just think about that. But like ponder the weight of that this morning. Um, the teacher might never find out about the test you cheated on. But God knows about that. And the college professor. My college professor might never find out that that paper I turned in was totally plagiarized. But, but God knows that. And, uh, and you can clear the history on your website as long as you want to. As often as you want to. 
God knows everything you've ever looked at. Uh, God knows about the flirting that's taking place at work, and He knows about the affair that started at the gym. Like God knows it all. You can get soundproof windows and doors in your house that your your neighbors can't hear you arguing with your spouse or, or your children at night. But but God hears those arguments. God hears those conversations. God even knows the pride in your heart when the preacher can't think of your sin on the spot. Right? Like, God knows it all. It's, 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 it's all exposed to God. And we can never pay back that debt. He sees all. He knows all. And nothing can be hid from his account. There is an accounted Debt. But notice, secondly, this morning, there's an amazing declaration. An amazing declaration. This story's going to take several twists and turns throughout. It's what makes the story so powerful. And we find the first twist here in verse number 26. So look at what happens here in verse 26. The Bible says, The servant, therefore, fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Now I want you to remember the statement that he says, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. But I also want you to point out, I also want to point out, like, this is a stupid thing to say, or a silly thing to say. Sorry, you don't like the word, the other S word I use, right? Like, uh, this is silly. This guy can never pay back his debt. It would take him 30 lifetimes to pay back all his debt. The, The king knows that's not happening. And yet, despite that, look at what the king does in verse 27. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion. You say, why was he moved with compassion? Well, he was moved with compassion because he is a compassionate king. His heart is filled with compassion. This is the character of the king. He is compassionate. And so he looses him. The the Greek word here for loose is actually one of the three Greek words we translate as grace elsewhere in Scripture. He does for him what he could not do for himself. He loses him, and then he forgave him the debt. The word forgave literally means to open up or to open the hand, to let go. So, So he does for him what he could not do for himself. He gives him grace, and then he forgives him the debt. Okay, so so picture it, okay? He he doesn't uh, extend the note. He doesn't make an interest-only payments, right? He he doesn't uh, doesn't do any of that. No, no, no. He, He completely erases the debt from the book. As significant as the debt was, the grace of the king was more significant. It was greater. You understand? As significant as the debt was, the grace of the king was Greater. This is a man who owes 10,000 talents, 30 lifetimes worth of debt. And yet the Bible says that the king forgave him outright. He let him go. And that man left the throne room that day with a burden of debt off of his shoulders. It was gone. He walked out after filling his whole life. Like he was crumbling under the weight of this debt. Like there was nothing he could do to get on top. And yet now he walks out free. He walks out light. He walks out with new life. But you mark it down. Somebody took the debt that day. Somebody absorbed the payments of 10,000 talents. There was a CEO of a major company today that came out and said, uh, yeah, so uh, we found this debt of $360 million, but we just decided to forgive it outright. We would all look at that guy and we'd say... With all due respect, sir, you're an idiot. Like you just bankrupt your business. Well, why would you do that? Yeah, that's exactly what the king in this story is willing to do. He's willing to absorb the debt. He's willing to to take on the payment. He's willing to, to bankrupt the kingdom for the forgiveness and compassion and love of one man. I just got to tell you, if you don't know how this all relates to you this morning, I got some good news for you on a Sunday because that's what Jesus did for you and me. He saw us in our sin. He saw us in our condemnation. He knew that we could never earn or work our way to God. And so he came down from heaven to be born of a virgin, to live 33 and a half years of perfection. And he did for us what we he could not do for ourselves. He went willingly to the cross. And on those cross, on that cross, he pulled up on those nails and he cried, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Hey, let them go. Open up your hand. Open up the wrath. Put their, put their 
And the Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God. And as Jesus pulled up on those nails and cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I believe it to be at that moment that Jesus took your sin, my sin, past, present, future sins of the entire world. And he bore them on his shoulders and he took the payment for our sin. He paid it with his blood. As he pulled up on those nails one last time, he cried the word to tell us that. Oh, it was a business term. It was something they would stamp on papers of debt saying to tell us that it's paid in full. You can't add to it. You can't take away. You can't pay more. We can't take more. No, no, no. This debt has been paid in full. It's translated beautifully with three words in our Bible. It is finished. Your debt has been taken care of. It has been paid for. And your salvation this morning is free. But you mark it down. It came at a great price. For Jesus Christ poured out his blood on Calvary. You can take the blood out of the songbook. You can take the blood out of these new Bibles. But you'll never take the blood out of salvation. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of of blood. Now, I don't know what you want to call that, but I call that amazing grace. Amen. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I found. Was blind, yet now I see. Man, one of my favorite old hymns, we don't want to sing it all that often anymore, but it's grace greater than all my sin. I think it's that, that third verse that says, dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What could avail to wash it away? Look, there's flowing a crimson tide. Whiter than snow you might be today. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that can pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. Listen, your sin may be great this morning, but his grace is greater. What he has done for you, is enough to save you of your sins. Oh man, he's a good God. And as much as I would love the story to end right there, I can't. Would you notice finally with me this morning an atrocious display? An atrocious display. Because as much as the story would would like be perfect to finish right here, like yes, you're forgiven. That's not why Jesus is telling the parable. Jesus is not just telling this parable to remind his disciples that they have been forgiven. No, no, no. He's telling this parable to specifically answer Peter's question. Like, this is a parable meant to to instruct the disciples the importance it is for them to go out and forgive. So the story takes another twist. This time it's much more disturbing. Look again at our text with us in Matthew chapter 18. And this time look at verse 28. It says, but the same servant. It has to clarify who he is, because you're not going to recognize him in a second. The same servant, the one that was just forgiven, 10,000 talents. That servant went out, and he found He searched out. He opened up his books. He found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. Now, a pence was a day's worth of wages in their day. So a hundred pence would have been a hundred days' worth of work. Now, nowhere in the text... Does Jesus say that's not significant? Nowhere in the text does Jesus say, yeah, not a big deal. In fact, I was to say that if you went three months without work, you'd be hurting a little bit. You'd been living within your means a little bit. You'd be stretched financially. Now, I think this is quite a big deal. In fact, I think it probably hurt the man. But Jesus is just stating facts. This guy who owes him a day, he finds a man who owes him a hundred days worth of work. And look what he does. Bible says, and he laid hands on him. And he took him by the throat, saying, pay me that thou owest. Okay, so I think this is best seen like illustrator. Okay, so this guy, he's, uh, he's just been free. He's just been let go. 10,000 talents. He leaves that throne room. He's thinking, by the skin of my teeth, man. Like, ooh, that was close. Wow, oh, what a guy. That guy's awesome. I mean, man, man, let's see who's working on the field today. Man, let's see here who's working on the field. Luke! Luke, man! Oh, it's good to see you. 
Luke, you hated money then? How's work today? Come on, come on up here, Luke. Right, let's go to the back alley where no one's watching, okay? Hey, good to see you, Luke. Hey, so you said work's good? Work's good. Pay me that now, Lois! Whoa! He takes him by the throat. Right, careful. I'm pretty sure Luke could kill me if he wanted to, all right? So, he says, pay me that thou owest. Whoa. Now, what happens? Don't go anywhere. All we've established is that you owe me money. Okay. What happens here? The Bible says in the next verse, verse 29, and his fellow servant, that's Luke, fell down at his feet. And he besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Oh, it should sound familiar. I told you to remember it. Because it's the exact same thing that this guy just said at the foot of the king. It's the same plea for grace. Notice, he is now being asked for the same grace that he had just received. I want to clarify. Just as he, just as the king had done for him what he could not do for himself, he is now being asked to do for Luke what Luke could not do for himself. Just as he had been let go and free, he is now being asked, quite literally, to let go. Let go and let me let me go. Forgive me. Right? And I'll pay thee all. Okay, so it's the same plea for grace. The only difference is that it's to a much lesser degree. And all I mean by that is that 30 lifetimes worth of wages is more significant than three months worth of wages. Are we on the same page there? Uh, we put it in a math equation. We would say 10,000 talents is greater than 100 pence. We, 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 we get that? Okay, but it's the same plea for grace. Look what it says in verse 30. It says that he would not. He would not. He would not do for him what he could not do for himself. He would not forgive. He would not let him go. He would not show him grace. He would not be moved with compassion. He would not. But rather, he took him and he cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. I want you to remember what happens here. This is going to be important for the end of our message. He takes him, and he casts him into prison until he should pay the debt. Thank you, Luke. You can go sit in prison. Your wife's not here, so it's not actual prison. I'm just going to ask So Luke is now in prison to pay back until he can pay back the debt that is owed to the servant. All right. Uh, I look at this story, and I get a little bit angry. I get, I get, I get a little angry. Because, um, well, I have a short temper. Uh, that's, that's my sin. I, I, am, I, am, uh, I am short fuse, and I get, I get, my temperament is not very good. And, and I look at this story, and I so identify with the first servant. In fact, I think that if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, you have to identify as that first servant. If you truly understand the weight of your sin that Jesus bore on Calvary, you're the first servant. You owed a debt to God you could never pay back. And he so willingly, so willingly gave himself for you, for me. So like I'm this first servant. I have been abundantly forgiven by God. But then the guy that represents me in the story goes and he chokes out Luke. And I don't like that. Because I kind of like Luke. He seems like a good guy. I don't want to be that guy. And so, like, I get angry. I'm like, well, I hope the king finds out about this. Because I don't think the king's going to be too happy about what this guy's doing out in the fields. Like, I don't think that's the point. I don't think that's how you're supposed to respond to the grace that's been given to you. And that's exactly where the story goes. The Bible says that the fellow servants, when they saw what was done, they were very sorry. And they went and told their Lord all that had happened. Then, look at, look at verse 32. Then his Lord, after that he had called him. So they, they, the Lord knows everything. He calls him back into the throne room. And he said unto him, Oh, thou wicked servant. And I'm looking at my lips a little bit. Yes, come on. Get this guy. He says, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desiredest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? Now, you don't need to understand Greek to know that's a rhetorical question. 
right? Like, the answer is yes, you should have, but it's too late for you, bucko. Like, it's time. It's judgment time is here. And I love the next verse. And his Lord was wroth, and he delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. And I tell you, I leap up from my chair, and I say, Woohoo! Justice is served! We got him, baby! Woo! And then I read the next verse. I don't know what Jesus could possibly add to make it any better. I mean, that was the perfect ending to the chapter. But apparently there's something else. Verse 35. So likewise, shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, Eric, if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. And suddenly I find myself saying, uh, give him another chance. Yeah, let, let him out. I'm sure he'll forgive now. Why is that? Why is it that when this is just some unnamed servant in Scripture, I've got no problem saying, yeah, throw him to the tormentors. Justice is served. But when it's me, when there's a soul likewise, it's you. Now give him another chance. Where's your mercy, Lord? Where's your compassion? You want to know what that is? For me, at least. I'm guessing for some of us, it's because we have this perspective in life that there's mercy for me and justice for you. That you deserve justice and I deserve mercy. Right? Uh, oh, officer. Oh, please have some grace. Was I really going 80 in a school zone? I mean, I'm so sorry. I was on my way to church. I was, I was preaching this morning. Oh, hey, please have some mercy. Please have some compassion on me. But when someone cuts you off in traffic, you demand for their license, you say all sorts of mean thing about them, right? Like, like uh, uh, they never even went to driver's that Where's the police officer now, right? Justice for you. Mercy for me. And Jesus comes into that worldview and he says, uh-uh, that's not the way it works. You cannot receive my grace and then refuse to give that grace to others. No, no, no. He says, listen, if you have been forgiven, if you have received the grace from God, then you now have the obligation, you have the responsibility to go out and give that grace to the people who hurt you the most and the people who deserve it the least. You say, oh, man, I was with you until you said that last little statement. I was all about, you know, if you got grace, you got to give grace, but, but we don't have to give it to the people that hurt us. We don't have to give it to the people that don't deserve it. No, no, no. no, no. Remember, that person hurt me. That, that person hasn't learned their lesson yet. That person isn't truly sorry. That person, uh, that, 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 they don't deserve my forgiveness. Can I just say this? We don't forgive because they deserve it. We're not commanded to forgive based on the fact that they have earned it or based on the fact they've learned their lesson, or based on the fact that they have somehow uh, measured up to your standards and have been sorry enough. No, no, no. We forgive because we have been forgiven. Remember our verse in Ephesians? Forgiving one another even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. You don't forgive because someone deserves it. You don't forgive because they've learned their lesson. You don't forgive because they've uh, been sorry or said they gave a good apology. No, no, no. You forgive because one day on Calvary, Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Not for your sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. He forgave you of your debt, and he forgave them of their debt. And I just got to tell you, Jesus can forgive then you ought to go and forgive. Amen. You say, yeah, 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 but that's, uh, well, that's not fair. Uh, Eric, they, they owe me. They, they owe me a marriage. They, they owe me a, 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 a childhood. They, they owe me some money. I mean, at the very least, Eric, they owe me an explanation. That's not fair. You're right. It's not fair. It's grace. And you'll never be asked to give more than you have already received from God. And that's what we're trying to learn through this parable. That the grace you have been given by God is far greater than the grace you're being asked to give to the people who hurt you and the people who don't deserve your forgiveness. And so what what, what the passage is inviting us to do is it's inviting us to hold up our hurts and to hold up our offenses and to hold up the, the wrongdoings of others and hold them up and ask them, are you sparking joy? 
Are you robbing me of my peace? Listen, you have no place in my heart. No, no, no. What God has done for me is greater than anything that has ever been done to me. And so I respond with forgiveness. Now, before we go home, I want to clarify something. Because if we don't, well, I'm afraid that, uh, I don't want to say it. We're in Texas, so I can be a little bit, you know, uh, we're going to leave with a, a messed up view of God, right? If I was in, like, the further south, I would say a jacked up view, but we're not. So I'll say a messed up view of God, right? We'll leave with a messed up view of God. I don't want to leave with a messed up view of God. He seems important, so we should probably get him right, and then we can go to lunch, okay? All right? Does that sound good? Okay. So listen, this, this passage has been used to teach all sorts of weird things, okay? So, so I want to look at kind of how the story, well, the story ends. Because this is important, because uh, we don't always get a so likewise when Jesus gives a parable. We don't always get a very clear application to why Jesus is telling the parable. Oftentimes, when Jesus tells a parable, that's the thing we're going to look at one later this week, where Jesus tells a parable and he just lets it hang. He lets it linger. He lets us wrestle with what its implications are in our lives. But in this case, Jesus gives us a so likewise. So we should probably look at it, right? We should probably put some weight to it. The Bible says in verse 35, So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. So if I could sum up, if I could like summarize what Jesus' main thrust here is, it would be that, that, the, that what happens to the guy in the story is going to happen to you if you do not learn how to sincerely forgive the people who have hurt you in your life. Because he says you have, it, is in, it is imperative that you forgive. Because if not, your fate is the same fate as the guy in the story. Okay, so what happens to the guy in the story? This is where all the things get messed up. Okay, what happens to the guy in the story? Verse 34. His Lord was wroth, and he delivered him to the tormentors <coughs> till he should pay all that was due unto him. Okay, there's two ways we can read this verse. The first way is that the Lord was wroth, and he delivered him, that's the servant, to the tormentors till he, the servant, should pay all that was due unto him, the, 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 the king. Right? He's got to pay back all that's due unto the king. Okay, if that's the case, how much does this guy owe? Well, he owes 30 life tax. Yeah, 10,000 talents. So how long is he going to be in the tormentor's debt? Well, forever, right? We, we, we would equivalent that to everlasting life. We would say that is eternal damnation in a place called hell where he's forever going to be tormented. Okay, and I just got to tell you, if you want to read the verse that way, I've got massive problems. Because if that's the case, then this guy's debt was never truly forgiven. That's right. The 10,000 talents was never forgiven. No, it was just put on hold until he messed up. And as soon as he did something the king didn't like, he put the debt back over his head and said, Oh, there you go. Now all the sin is still yours. And I have to say, if that's how you think your salvation works, that it comes with like this asterisk that says, yeah, Jesus paid it all, except for when you don't mess up, except for if like you choose not to forgive, then... Sorry, buddy. It's all on you. Right. If that's how you want to view your salvation, I've got to say this. You have made the death of Jesus insignificant. That's right. No, no, no. Jesus paid it all, my friends. Yeah. I believe when he says it is finished, he meant it. He truly paid for the sin. It is gone. In fact, it is cast as far as the east is from the west. It is buried in the sea of God's forgetfulness. It never comes back around. That sin has been paid for in full. That's salvation. Nothing you can do can earn it, and nothing you can do can put it back over your head. No, no, no. Jesus paid it all. Okay, so there's another way to read this verse. You could also read it that the Lord was wroth, and he delivered him, the servant, to the tormentors, till he, the servant, pays back all that was due unto him, the servant. How much is owed to him, the servant, in this passage of Scripture? A hundred pence. And I believe what's taking place here is that the king says, okay, what, what, what did you do to, to the guy that owed you money? Oh, you cast him into prison. He's now in the tormentor's den. He said, okay, well then you're going to go to the tormentor's den until you learn how to let him out. And if you don't let him out, well then you're going to be tormented. But when you let him out, well then you get set free. 
I love this. The king puts him in the tormentor's den, but he gives him the key out at the very same time. And I love this because that's what bitterness does to us, my friends. Bitterness binds us in a prison of our own making. It it torments us. We think that we're hurting them, but in reality, we've locked ourselves in the tormentor's den. We're the one hurting. As someone has written, that bitterness is the poison that we drank, hoping it affects somebody else. But we're the one infected. We're the one who can't sleep. We're the one who can't eat. We're the one whose relationships are infected by mistrust. We're the one being tormented. And Jesus says, hey, if you learn how to forgive, well, forgiveness is setting someone free and then realizing who really got set free was you. You got set free. You're the one that sleeps better that night. You're the one whose relationships can start to be built up by trust again. Oh, forgiveness does not mean the pain just goes away. Forgiveness does not just mean that you forget whatever happened. No. Many times forgiving is actually remembering the hurt that was done. Remembering the wrong that occurred. But choosing not to seek vengeance, but rather giving it to God and let Him be God and you be free. Forgiveness sets you Free. I believe with all my heart there is life-changing power in forgiveness. Because when you forgive, you not only set someone else free. No, no, no. You set yourself free. You get peace. You get rest. Because you're choosing to walk out the grace that has been given to you. You're choosing to forgive like you've been forgiven. You're choosing to show grace like you have been given grace. All my friends, Peter looks at Jesus. He says, how often shall I forgive my brother who has sinned against me? Seven times? Oh, no, Jesus. Jesus looks at Peter. He says, no, 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 Peter. Not seven times, but 70 times. You never hold on to the grudge. You never hold on to the bitterness. You always offer forgiveness. Why? Because that's grace. Because what I have done for you is greater than what you what has been done to you. I'm telling you, if you allow what's done to you to overshadow what I've done for you, you're going to be in torment. You're going to end up tormenting yourself. Hey, be set free. Let forgiveness flow this morning. When forgiveness begins to flow, revival begins to come. When we let forgiveness fill our hearts, revival begins to fill the room. The presence of God comes near when forgiveness is being shown. Why? Because you want to know what binds up the Spirit of God in our churches? You want to know what builds a dam in the river of the Spirit of God? Bitterness. Bitterness. So let's not grieve the Spirit. Let's not quench the Spirit of God. But rather, maybe pull out those roots of bitterness, hold them up, realize they don't spark joy, and get them out of our lives. Lord, we thank you so much.